Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. In the course of the past month, as Joe Biden faced his first foreign policy crisis over his moves to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan ahead of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, there was one journalist above all that I wanted to bring on the show, a reporter, writer, and author whose work over those past 20 years on Afghanistan, Iraq, and the global war on terror has been peerless, and who'd been cranking out a series of searing pieces on Biden's planned conclusion of America's longest war since the spring, foreseeing the coming crisis at a time when the rest of us had precious little inkling of what was on the horizon, and who, in the midst of that crisis, also published an insightful essay about 9-11 and how that terrible event changed our country in ways large and small. So, I said to the crack booking team here at Hell and High Water, crack booking team, the time has come for the Tuesday before September 11th. Let's get that guy on the show. And here we are on that very Tuesday. And here he is, George Packer. The state of our union is perpetually mired in the same partisan war that it's been for the last 10 or 20 years. And I'm bored with that. And I'm frustrated with that and want to find a way out. But there doesn't seem to be a way out. So we keep on fighting the same old fight. If you're a reader of upmarket magazines or award-winning books on weighty topics from U.S. foreign policy to the unraveling of America, or both, you are likely familiar with George Packer, a staff writer for The New Yorker from 2003 to 2018, and currently a staff writer at The Atlantic. Packer is the author of The Assassin's Gate, America in Iraq, The Unwinding, and Inner History of the New America, for which he won the National Book Award, Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century, for which he was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize, and most recently, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. Last Best Hope was published in June, and that was when I first started thinking that I needed to get a hold of George for a Zoom-side chat, because the book describes the fracturing of America over the past 40 years about as well and as interestingly and as provocatively as anything I have read in a long time. Packer's thesis, in short, is that our nation hasn't just fractured into two Americas, red and blue, Democrat and Republican, but that the national narratives espoused by those two Americas have further subdivided into four dominant stories that they use to explain the country, its identity, its history, and its aspirations, which Parker identifies as free America, smart America, real America, and just America. In our talk, Packer and I chopped up those narratives, as well as exploring the intriguing reality that Joe Biden ascribes to none of them, and instead holds dear a different, fifth narrative, which Packer dubs Equal America. We also, of course, went deep on Afghanistan and what Biden's handling, or as Packer sees it, his mishandling of it, tells us about Biden's foreign policy, his worldview, and his character. And we finished up by discussing 9-11 and whether what happened at the Capitol on January 6th of 2021 represents an even greater threat to our democracy and our way of life than what happened at Ground Zero in September of 2001. On all of these topics, the conversation is engrossing and bracing and sometimes unnerving, as Packer reminds us that the end times apocalyptic vibe of the past two years didn't come out of nowhere, that it's the result of two decades worth of intense turmoil, foreign and domestic, Two decades that saw way more than their share of hell and high water. Last night in Kabul, the United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. When I was running for president, 
I made a commitment to the American people that I would end this war. And today, I've honored that commitment. It was time to be honest with the American people again. We no longer had a clear purpose in an open-ended mission in Afghanistan. After 20 years of war in Afghanistan, I refused to send another generation of America's sons and daughters to fight a war that should have ended long ago. So there he was, Joe Biden, the day after, the day after, as we call it, the day after the war in Afghanistan officially came to an end. And we're here on Hell and High Water with George Packer, maybe the single person I most want to talk to about this. Maybe, maybe Joe Biden I'd rather talk to you about than you, George, but it's great to have you here. So thanks for doing the podcast. Thank you. Have you been writing about Afghanistan for 20 years? It feels to me like you've been writing about Afghanistan practically since this started. You know, less Afghanistan, I guess, than Iraq at Rock, the beginning yeah. in the first five or 10 years of the 20-year war on terror. Afghanistan, much more, starting in 2009. Made three trips there. Wrote a book about Richard Holbrook, who was Obama's man on Afghanistan. And wrote a profile of Ashraf Ghani in 2016. And followed the events of the last few months, really, pretty closely. Starting in March, I was writing a series of pieces saying, this is coming to an end. It's going to happen faster than we imagine. There are tens of thousands of Afghans who have staked their lives on trusting us and our promises, and we have to get them out. I've read those pieces, all of them, I think, starting from the spring and running straight through the summer all the way into the maw of this crisis in August. And you know, your focus, George, has been consistent through every one of those pieces, kind of laser focus on the moral issues related to America's allies and particularly the Afghans who helped America over the course of the past 20 years of conflict. But before we get to that super important set of issues, let's just start with the larger kind of overarching precursor question about the big decision here, the macro decision, which is, do you agree that it was time to end the war? You know, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, the majority of Americans, regardless of what they said about the handling of our departure from Afghanistan, they all had a consistent agreement on that big question, that it was time to go. So the question, I guess, is, do you agree? You know, I find that a very hard question to answer. I am not absolutely dogmatically certain one way or the other. And I think a lot of people have become maybe too certain because there's a pretty good argument, a pretty reasonable argument going both ways. It's powerful when you hear Joe Biden say, we've been there for 20 years, the mission has lost its way, we've had no business staying on after Osama bin Laden was killed, um, that was our purpose, we achieved it, why have we been there the last 10 years, why should more Americans die? All of that is powerful and convincing, and I think he showed real courage and leadership in making that final decision, even though Donald Trump had essentially put him in a position where he pretty much had to. But there's an argument on the other side and some surprising people are making it. For example, Rory Stewart, the British politician and writer who has been a real skeptic of American policy in Afghanistan, he argues that we had found a formula with a very small number of troops to sustain support for the Afghan government, which at least allowed enough breathing room that what we did achieve, which is essentially the beginnings of a new society, of a new generation of Afghans who really for the first time experienced 
something like a modern life, a life of freedom, of being able to find their own way and, and pursue their own dreams. We had found a formula in which we had very few risks and we could keep a lifeline to that state and that army in order for that society to continue to breathe and to grow. And when we pulled that line out, that society was cut off from its oxygen and is dying. It's dying in front of our eyes. So that too, to me, is a pretty compelling argument. I mean, it makes me a little crazy just to hear Joe Biden and others adopt what I think is a cheap phrase. We must end the forever wars. It's like, what does that mean? I mean, I, I'll cite the obvious examples. We have troops on the, the border between North and South Korea. We've had them there for decades. Is that a forever war? Does that count? So NATO troops count as a forever war? Does any place we have troops forward deployed count as a forever war if we've been there for decades for the sake of stability and security? I just think it's a flabby concept. I mean, there obviously are wars that we overstay and have gone on too long. There's no doubt about that. I'm sure we would agree on a number of them, but the concept is so ill-defined and so kind of promiscuously and blithely tossed around without any real exploration. It doesn't seem very useful to me as a way of understanding what's going on. And even closer to the subject, we have special forces in Africa. Yeah. And we had a number in Afghanistan that was close to the very limited forces that we now have in Africa and that sustained no casualties, I think, in the last 18 months. So there's fatigue, there's exhaustion. The mistake was to put 100,000 troops in Afghanistan and imagine that we would somehow break the Taliban's will and create the circumstances in which a legitimate government could actually assert its rule all over the country. That never happened. It may not have been possible with foreign intervention. Foreign intervention has these sort of chemical effects of turning people against the intervention, no matter what government the intervention is trying to prop up, including a corrupt one or a non-corrupt one, a representative one, a dictatorial one. So our very presence helped the Taliban and the surge helped it a great deal. But by 20, 15 or 16, we had tired of counterinsurgency and reduced it to essentially logistics, intelligence, air support. And that formula, although it was not a great success, the Taliban were taking districts right. in rural Afghanistan. They didn't have any provincial capitals and certainly not close to being able to take Kabul. And instead, we essentially said, we're done. You can have Kabul. And the Taliban themselves were shocked and didn't want Kabul. They were not ready to go in. They wanted to stay outside. They were actually afraid of Kabul. Yeah. And I think the reason is there are 5 million people in that city and most of them are hostile to the Taliban and the Taliban know it. And most of them are living a life they've never lived before and that the Taliban understand is a kind of a threat, even if it's not armed. It's an unarmed threat to their ability to control the country. But we made it easier for the Taliban in Kabul and we made it much harder for the Afghans who needed to get out because they had a target on their back to get out. And for that, Biden has to bear the blame. Right. Not for the decision to end the war, but for right. the recklessness, the Daisy and Tom Buchanan-ness of his washing his hands of the place and blaming the Afghans for not fighting and for not wanting it enough. All of that turned my stomach and made me think there's a side of Joe Biden that I don't like. One of the pieces you wrote had this headline on it, which really stuck out and got a lot of coverage in some places on cable. Biden's betrayal of Afghans will live in infamy, which is a pretty scathing headline. That was a piece that, that you published August 15th, kind of right at the peak of when people were realizing that there was the worst of the scenes of the televised images of what was going on at the airport. Is it your judgment now that we're through it? 
through it in the sense that the war is now officially over and, and most of the Americans are now out. Is that your now kind of considered judgment that this was in some way, forget about the objective, the ultimate objective, but in terms of how it was executed, ultimately kind of a catastrophe. And I asked the question simply because I do think that there are many people who think we should have left and we should have left now or within this year, but who look at the way in which it all played out and say, for one reason or another, this could have been done so much better. And yet on the other side, and then I'll end my very long question, you have those who say, there is no good way to wind down a war that America's lost. It will be ugly. It will be untidy. Joe Biden has said this, but others have said it too. Yeah. I mean, I think those words, ugly, messy, no good way, are a bit like forever war in that they are dodges. They're phrases you can use to say nothing is perfect. We know nothing's perfect. We know ending a war cannot be done well. We know it's going to be ugly and messy. The question is, how ugly, how messy, how much better or worse <laughs> than it was done? And I think there has been an achievement since I wrote that piece. According to official statistics, about 120,000 people were flown out of the airport in Kabul. I'd like to see how those statistics are broken down and where the record of them is, I'm not gonna take them at face value. And they also include all kinds of people. They include every evacuation by one of our allies, not just by Americans. They include Americans themselves, they include foreign nationals, and they include Afghans. From what I've seen, the number of Afghans is about 60,000, about half of that number. 60,000 Afghans. But let's talk about it in two ways. One, what it took for them to get out. I have many friends and I know of many people who were doing essentially almost 24 hours a day for two weeks of texting and calling on WhatsApp and on Signal with Afghans to try to get them through the crowd, through the Taliban, through the Afghan security who are acting like a rogue force, through our own Marines and civilians into the airport without that incredible effort by private citizens, journalists, veterans, humanitarians of all kinds, I would bet that two thirds of those Afghans would not have even gotten into the airport and therefore would not have gotten onto planes, which is why so many planes were leaving half full or less because people simply couldn't get in. It was too dangerous. It was too difficult. It was too chaotic. There was no system. It was pure chaos. Did that have to be? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If they had begun planning in March as people like me and Matt Zeller and others were urging. We know how to do logistics. We're really good at logistics. We proved it in Kabul. We got all those people out. But the logistics of getting them to the airport, which might have included enough troops to secure humanitarian corridors, enough troops to actually go into the city and find those people, which I think the Taliban would have allowed if we had negotiated it with them, because the Taliban did not want this to go down as a catastrophe yeah, on right. their watch. We didn't do that. Instead, we stayed inside the airport and let people come into us, which took a, a tremendous amount of courage and luck. In a lot of cases, the strong got through and the weak did not. Old people, sick people, people with small children couldn't make it. Right. So what kind of evacuation is that? That's the first half of it. The other half is, who have we left behind? Do we know? Every day, more numbers come out, more individual stories, more groups, Afghan women soldiers. I know American vets who are trying to get them out, largely unsuccessful. You can imagine how big the target is on their backs. So 
before we congratulate ourselves on a really amazing logistical feat, which all those flights out of Kabul airport were, let's look at the consequences of the failure to plan and of the policy decisions and non-decisions that led to the chaos at the airport. I'm not going to give Joe Biden a pass on those. Yep. Yes. And so now to come to my other thread, which spools out very nicely from this, right, which is I've known Joe Biden since 1987. I am a pretty thorough student of him. And I had never looked at this history. So when you wrote about what Biden's position was in 75, right? Yep. When the question of what should be done about South Vietnamese allies of America who had fought in the disastrous war that was Vietnam alongside Americans, should they be welcomed into America or not the refugees? And I can mean, I remember being a child and we heard the stories of the Vietnamese boat people coming across and being welcomed into America. These were great stories that Joe Biden at the time, you remind us in more than one of your pieces, was dead set against that, said he would do anything, pay any price to get all the Americans out, but not a penny for any of the South Vietnamese, not for one, not for 100,000. So I was stunned in some ways to read both the historical thing, the analogy is in some ways perfect, especially since Biden then raised it <laughs> by making the point about how this is not Saigon. You know, these seem to me not off point and to speak to something about character and about principle with respect to this kind of issue. I'd like to hear what you think about that. Well, in 75, Biden did not oppose refugee entry into the U.S. He was mildly in favor. What he opposed was spending a single dollar or risking a single American life to help evacuate our South Vietnamese allies in the right. last weeks of the war. And it was Gerald Ford in the Oval Office who was pleading with Biden and a group of other senators to appropriate money for this. And of all the people in the room, Biden, first term senator from Delaware, was the most brutally frank in saying, why should we? We owe them nothing. We have no moral debt to them. And he said the same thing on the floor of the Senate a week later. And Ford said, but we've always been a country that helped people flee from oppression. The Jews of Europe, which, of course, we did actually not do much to help. <laughs> Refugees from communist Cuba, et cetera, Soviet Jews. Why not these people? And Biden said, I, I just don't see it. I'm not going to risk an American life. Very similar language to what he's been using these last few weeks. And then fast forward in 2010, Richard Holbrook's diary, which I reproduce in my book, I have a long section in which you're hearing directly in the first person from Holbrook, splicing together diary entries, recorded that he went in to see Biden in like October of 2010. This is during the surge, which Biden opposed, as we all know. And Biden said, I want all of our troops out. And Holbrook was confused. He said, you mean leaving a residual force, which you've always talked about in the Situation Room? Biden said, no, every last troop. We don't belong there. We need to get out. So this was 10, 11 years ago. Holbrook said, but what about the women in, of Afghanistan? What about the people who've helped us and counted us? What are we going to do about them? I'm not going to send my boy back there, meaning Bo, yeah. to fight for women's rights. That's not what we're there for. It won't work. He was sort of saying to Holbrook, politically, the American people will not accept that. Right. And Holbrook kept pressing it and reminding him of the history behind this in Vietnam. And then Biden sort of rose out of his chair and exploded and said, fuck that. It doesn't matter. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. In other words, we abandoned the Vietnamese in 73 with a peace deal that essentially left South Vietnam exposed to North Vietnamese invasion. And no one blamed Nixon or Kissinger because people wanted the war to be done. And you could similarly say no one blamed Gerald Ford for the chaotic evacuation of Saigon. 
he didn't lose in 76 because of the helicopters leaving the rooftops in 75. Right. And I don't think it's going to hurt Biden either. So what do we learn about Biden from this history? One thing, he's a politician and he judges foreign policy in part and largely, I'd say, by how he thinks his constituents think about it. And he knows his constituents, the American people, are tired of the war in Afghanistan and want to be done with it. And being done with it is sort of the beginning and the end of his policy on Afghanistan. And regardless of how we're done with it and who's left behind. But the other thing it shows us is a kind of parochialism. He is Joe from Scranton. He's very good with union steelworkers. He's very good with cashiers. He knows how to talk to the American people, how to speak the language of the middle class and the working class. And that's why he's had such success as a politician. It doesn't seem like he's all that interested in the cashier in in Kabul or the food peddler in Kabul. That seems like it's almost beyond his scope of interest. It's weird though, John, because you know, in the 90s, he was a strong proponent of intervention in Bosnia. He really felt the genocide of the Bosnian Muslims keenly and wanted yes. us to, to intervene with NATO air power. I don't know whether that was a little detour or what, but it seems like there's a through line of not being particularly moved by stories from abroad that would move him here at home. And I obviously agree with your assessment of him as being a politician. Having said that, he's also a guy who, if you know him at all, takes great pride in having been the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he thinks of himself as a foreign policy wise man, you know, sage, someone who's traveled the world, and he has, someone who's sat in a million hearings, and he has, someone who's read all the big books, and he has, and who has big, big ideas in his view about foreign policy. It's not like he's just like your average, you know, congressman from Peoria who sees every foreign policy issue in terms of does it move the needle in terms of my reelection? That's never been Joe Biden's self-conception, at least. I think everything you said is penetrating and illuminating about Biden. But one of the things that I still have questions about, and I think you have some insight into it because you've written about it and you've talked to Biden about it, is that it's not just the Bosnian question that you just cited. It's that his own view of Afghanistan changed in a pretty fundamental way. And one of the things was for a period of time, and I believe you quote him from an interview you did with him at some phase where he was in his pro-nation building phase. He was not just, you know, we should be in Afghanistan because we don't want it to become a safe haven for radical Islamic terror or for Al-Qaeda in particular or ISIS or whoever, but we should be there to try to create some kind of a democratic society and to provide a kind of freedom for Afghans and for the women and the girls and all of that. And then he changed. And now he is in a completely different place. I want to play one piece of sound and then ask you to talk about what you think happened that changed Joe Biden from where he was in Afghanistan in the early part of the new century to where he has been since the Obama administration, which is where he is today. But let's play this one piece of sound, you guys, where Biden talked last Tuesday about what were the lessons, what were the mistakes? As we turn the page on the foreign policy that has guided our, nas- our nation the last two decades, We've got to learn from our mistakes. To me, there are two that are paramount. First, we must set missions with clear, achievable goals, not ones we'll never reach. And second, we must stay clearly focused on the fundamental national security interest of the United States of America. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. So there it is. 
my question was, what changed? Number one. Yeah. And number two, relatedly, is this the beginning or is that the early phases of what we will come to one day think of as the Biden doctrine, whether he is in office for four years or for eight? It's remarkable to hear him. I mean, he just enunciated essentially what's called realism. We should give up any notion of uh, a value-driven foreign policy. We should give up any idea of transforming other countries. And we should stick to pretty narrowly defined national interests, which is what George Bush ran on in 2000. <laughs> it's been a kind of recurring theme in American foreign policy after we've lost wars. I interviewed him in 2003 or four, and he was at the height of his nation building energy. He told me a story of going to Kabul earlier, like around 2002, and being in a cold, ill-lit schoolroom, talking to a group of Afghan school children, including girls, and one girl stood up and said in English, you cannot leave us, you have to stay here. I wanna be a doctor, you have to stay and fulfill your promise and let me become a doctor. And Biden was tremendously moved by this. And he basically told that girl, we won't leave. And he told me, we cannot leave. We can't just let the chips fall. We have to do what we can in order to create a society or let the Afghans create one in which that girl has a chance. Otherwise, what are we doing there other than looking in vain for Osama bin Laden? So he was all for nation building. He wanted George Bush to start spending a lot more money. I think he even used the phrase a Marshall Plan for Afghanistan. I interviewed him again two years later. And what had happened in the meantime is the Iraq war. And he was in perceptible pain and confusion and really wrestling with himself. How did this go wrong? What did I get wrong? Because of course he supported the war and voted to authorize it, even though as the chair of Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he did ask some very hard questions about the aftermath, and he was very thoughtful about the aftermath. Still, he knew that he had some blame to bear. And I think at that point, I was catching him in transition. And the next I heard from him, it was not in person, but it was when we learned that he was the naysayer in the Obama administration calling for not more troops, but fewer troops, not more nation building, but no nation building, a simple counterterrorism operation with about 3,000 very carefully chosen troops. And I think Iraq was so devastating for Biden and undermined his confidence in maybe his own judgment, but certainly in American power, that he kind of went to the other extreme, from one to the other. He went from humanitarian interventionist, which was something many people, including me, were coming out of the 90s, yep. to deep skeptic of the military, deep skeptic of the generals who he saw boxing in young Barack Obama and forcing him essentially to commit to a, an escalation that Obama really didn't want. And I think he never, he never got over that. And then there's his son, whose service is always on Biden's mind when he talks about the military and whenever he says, God protect our troops. You feel that he's saying, I wish God had been able to protect my own son. Apparently, when he went to see the families of the 13 Marines who were killed in the suicide bombing at the Kabul airport, he mentioned Bo Biden many times to the discontent of some of those families. But some veterans have said to me, if he really cares about the troops, he would not leave Afghanistan in a way that's going to traumatize us 
is going to add to our trauma for the rest right. of our lives. The troops at the airport who are going to never forget the faces of the Afghans outside the gates. So I, I think he swung to a position of maybe narrow realism in foreign policy doctrine. And uh, my job is to protect the troops and did it in a way that kind of lost some of the imagination and some of the heart and soul that Biden seemed to show back in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's fascinating to me that an issue like this, one of the very few issues on which Donald Trump and Joe Biden agreed, and that before a month ago, there was broad and still on the ultimate endgame, still broad bipartisan support. A rare issue in America where the public agrees. The war in Afghanistan must end. Trump supporters believe it. Biden supporters believe it. And yet here we are having another one of these very pitched, very partisan, very bitter arguments about it when the moment came and Joe Biden did exactly what Donald Trump said he wanted to do. We now have yet another one of these, essentially a culture war around a foreign policy issue. And that leads us directly into some of the big, big themes of George Packer's fantastic book published a little bit earlier this year, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. We're going to dig into that after the break with George Packer here on Hell and High Water. And we are back with George Packer to talk about his incredible book, one of many fantastic George Packer books. But I have to say, this one hit me square in the middle of the forehead. And you do a brilliant thing in this book, which is to help a lot of people have inchoate views about what's going on in America to think about them through the use of creative taxonomy. We'll get to that in a second. But let's start with a little sound from a former president of the United States citing one of the most enduring political metaphors, images in recent modern political rhetoric. I've spoken of a shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with pre-ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. The shining city on a hill. There it is. Ronald Wilson Reagan. That metaphor, very powerful to a lot of people, and it pops up in your book, George. And so I just want you to talk about it. Let's start, you know, I said creative taxonomy. Reagan is part of that, and that metaphor is part of your description of what you talk about in the book in terms of the four Americas. I don't want to get ahead of it though. So just talk about how you came to this book and how you came to the big ideas that animate your description of basically why the country is, has been for a while now, but more intensely than ever is kind of coming apart at the seams. Well, first, it's remarkable to hear Reagan. And I don't know, there's something very moving about that kind of optimism because we're so far from it now. Yeah. It's a COVID book, John. It's a book that was born of necessity. I was stuck in place like so many people, in a sense, fortunate to be stuck in place. I didn't have to go to a job. So my job was to sit on my ass in front of a laptop for the better part of a year. I couldn't travel. I couldn't talk to people in person, which is for me the only real way to do journalism, to interview people. And so instead I read and thought and realized I should use this enforced isolation to collect my thoughts that have been building over the last 10 or 20 years into something very short and sharp. My model was like a political pamphlet. 
which is a great literary form. In other words, an essay-like book that intervenes in a crisis and tries to push people's thinking about it in a certain direction, but also is written in a way that might last longer than the crisis itself. So it was a 2020 book, a year that to me exposed all of our underlying ills and problems, the inequality of our economy, the savage unfairness of our economy, and the racial component of that unfairness and that inequality, our total breakdown of the public health system, and above all, our inability to govern ourselves, to come together as a collective through our government and try to solve a problem that affected the entire country. All of that went into my thinking about the book, but really what I wanted to do was both immerse the reader in that moment, late 2020 when I began writing, but then step way back, almost two steps back. First, the last 50 years. For me, the years from the early 70s to the present are a very distinct era, and it's the era in which so much of what we live with daily today began and then ripened and rotted. And I wanted to try to understand what have been the cultural and political narratives, really, the ways of thinking about America that have come out of it. And finally, a bigger step back, really, to the early 19th century, to Tocqueville, to Lincoln, and to some of the permanent ideas that don't seem to change very much, that kind of account for our national identity. I wanted to see if I could describe an American identity that might be the very fragile basis for re-knitting the country together because I do think there's something we all have in common, even though right now we seem like mortally opposed tribes. And I wanted to look at it hard from the past and the present and to try to not just describe it, but propose it. Because mostly this is a book that is an attempt to salvage something and to point a way forward. So you wrote a book, uh, a much heralded and justifiably heralded book that came out in 2013 that was called The Unwinding, An Inner History of the New America. That book won a National Book Award and was a deeply reported book, a book that did what you just described not being able to do during COVID, where you were around the country writing about various pockets of America, representative subcultures, and really larger than subcultures, big tributaries within the culture to kind of really talk about what had happened in America from, I think we all sort of date this to the early 70s on when a bunch of economic, technological, social, demographic changes started to make what you referred to as the new America in that book. I think about this book as being a little bit of a sequel to that book coming kind of directly out of it. It's eight years later. All of the trends that you wrote about in The Unwinding have only accelerated. And now you're kind of writing and without being able to report in the same way, trying to put a, more of a thematic and theoretical framework around that work. They seem to me to be companion books. I'm curious whether you thought of them that way, number one. And then number two, let's just get into the four narratives that you alluded to a second ago, because that is the theoretical framework, the taxonomy that I referred to earlier, that I think is super illuminating. There's also a fifth narrative. We'll get to that a little later on. Tell me whether, first of all, you think this book is very much a sister companion in a way to The Unwinding. It absolutely is. You couldn't have put it better, John. The Unwinding was essentially the findings of much reporting and much travel. And this book is more like an essay, and it is absolutely an attempt to distill the findings of The Unwinding. And I'd been thinking for a couple of years, the taxonomy, the four narratives, came to me really over the Trump period. Trump was 
for me, the revelation that we are not just red and blue, the easy way of seeing the division of the country and a true way, every election confirms it, but Trump showed other things were dividing us even more profoundly on either side of the red-blue divide. So we can go through the narratives and I can talk about how Please. they show that, but the first is exactly what you played earlier. It's uh, Reagan's vision of a country of free people, which I call free America. In that speech, he makes it sound like an American, which I would be really happy. <laughs> the doors are open. We're receiving people from around the world who only need to have the energy and the values to come here and be part of this beautiful city. It's irresistible. The reality of free America was essentially economic freedom, which Reagan doesn't really talk about in that wonderful image, but it was basically low taxes, deregulation, small government, essentially getting government out of our lives so that Americans could pursue their entrepreneurial fortunes unencumbered without the government telling them, no, you can't pollute that stream. No, you have to pay 60% in marginal tax rates, et cetera. It did not live up to its promise because the shining city on the hill was actually at least two cities. One, getting richer all the time, no matter who was president, no matter what the economic cycle, the business cycle, boom or bust, rich beyond belief, rich to the point of gilded age levels. And the other city was slowly or not so slowly withering away. And I don't just mean poverty, I mean the way of life of essentially blue collar and middle class America, where a high school degree and a decent set of values was enough to have a solid future for yourself and your children. That has disappeared, and it disappeared for a lot of reasons, but partly because of free America, which tore out some of the foundations of a decent middle-class life. Some of the government support, some of the union support, which Reagan was hostile to. So when people voted for Reagan, I don't know that they knew they were voting to get rid of labor unions and to get rid of the social safety net, and essentially to get rid of a life in which people of modest means and modest education could feel that they were fully equal citizens, but that's what happened. So free America, the most politically powerful of our lifetime, John, I mean, yes. it set the terms that we lived with for decades. Totally. Democrats and Republicans alike had to live within those terms. That's why Bill Clinton had to say the era right. of big government is over. The dominant narrative of the period that we're talking about here, which is to say, again, that sort of post-60s, post-Watergate. Post-Vietnam. Uh, Post-Vietnam, yeah. post-breaking of the, the OPEC crisis, all the stuff that happened, this, that post-70s period, the 70s changed everything. From then on, the dominant narrative for really for 40 years, I would say. And arguably still the dominant narrative. Well, I think it's still the dominant narrative of the Republican Party in its elite version and of corporate America yes. and of the business elite. I think when you think about in cultural terms, putting aside the particular policies or ideologies, the reason I say that I think that free America continues to have a large, even outside the Republican context, if you think about popular culture, you think about the sentimental, the romantic, like what's the version of American sentimental ism, the American romanticism? How do we like to think of ourselves for many people still, if you watch 
network television or go to sporting events. The free America is still out there, man. It's still a very big narrative at that level of abstraction. But I would say of the four, and I'll invite you now to speak of the smart America, that's the competitor for the dominant narrative strand in our culture and also in our politics, I would say, because it's the dominant narrative of the Democratic Party, or at least has been for the last 20 or 30 years. Exactly. Yeah. Smart America, I think of as Bill and Hillary Clinton's America. It's Barack Obama's America. It's what has come to be called the meritocracy, the narrative that says your talents and your effort will be rewarded. And essentially, the economy rewards the good. It's connected in that way to free America. It's very much shaped by the sense of a land of opportunity and people who work hard, et cetera, should make it. Except the emphasis in smart America is on education, not on business entrepreneurship. It's on going to the right schools, getting the right education, doing well on standardized tests, going to the right university, which is a crucial event in the life cycle of smart America, and then getting into the right profession, generally professions that have been the central ones in the economy of the last 40 years, technology, finance, law, and engineering, consulting, architecture, and journalism, you could say, is part of smart America too, and academia. So it is the narrative of educated professionals. And it has become, as you said, John, the core narrative of the Democratic Party in the 90s, I think. The Clintons and the shift of the party away from blue-collar workers and the working class generally toward the values and the fundraising of professionals and the sort of openness to the world, to new things, to technology, to globalization, the value put on knowledge, all of that changed the constituency of the Democratic Party in a really big way. And the party benefited and paid a big price, I think, both from that change. In 2000, Bill Clinton had a conference at the White House on the new economy. And the euphoria, if you look yes. back at the speeches, is astonishing. Yes. Bill Clinton said, the internet will free more people from poverty than anything in human history. The internet will do that. It was part of the optimism of the 90s. But what's wrong with it? Basically, it has become a kind of class system of its own, right. where the promise of a meritocracy that welcomes all comers from all classes and all backgrounds really no longer applies if it ever did because families have figured out how to game it so that their kids are going to be the ones who make it. You're born a meritocrat today. It's very hard to become one from nowhere. In fact, I saw a figure that said it is just as hard today as it was in 1954 for a poor person to get into a top Ivy League college. No change in almost 60 years. So that tells you Whatever the reality of meritocracy, and I think there was genuine rising opportunity maybe 40 or 50 years ago, has closed off. And now it's a sort of family business. That is the promise and the failure of smart America. Each of these narratives has both an attractive value it offers and kind of a blind spot or a failure. I will say the uh, thing you just described, which I think is true, is of course ironic given that one of the things that was heralded about the meritocracy was that you know, it was stood in opposition to the notion of inherited wealth, old money being handed down. This is, you know, a, again, a family business, as you put it. That's what we kind of critiqued 
about the old hereditary establishment and the old money, especially of the East Coast and the Ivy League and all of that. And now we're replicating that. The meritocracy was supposed to be on something other than that, but it's now become increasingly hereditary in its own way. And that makes it sound very much like a rigged system. And the fact that it is in some ways a rigged system has opened the door to the other two narratives that you talk about. One of them is the real America. And I will put some air quotes around real in this context, but let's play one a little bit of sound here. I, you know, wrote a book called Game Change in which uh, Sarah Palin, who was an early avatar of the real America, really the first who literally talked about real Americans as opposed to all other Americans in a very particular way. But the mantle was then donned by another politician, the ultimate champion of the real America, again, and with air quotes around it. And that would be Donald Trump here talking at the 2016 Republican convention. Every day, I wake up determined to deliver a better life for the people all across this nation that have been ignored, neglected, and abandoned. I have visited the laid-off factory workers and the communities crushed by our horrible and unfair trade deals. These are the forgotten men and women of our country. And they are forgotten, but they're not going to be forgotten long. These are people who work hard, but no longer have a voice. I am your voice. It was such a crude speech, and I remember watching it in that arena in Cleveland mm-hmm. and thinking it was a dark and an apocalyptic speech and crude and painted in the most garish kind of primary colors. But when you listen to it now, especially when you think about how little of that kind of talk came out of Trump in 2020, how far he got away from that message of being the Tribune, you start to understand why he was beatable, because that was actually, for all of its the things that we can mock about it, was a powerful message in 2016, and he lost track of it in a lot of ways over the course of four years. I mean. Those lines, which you heard in person, were Trump's version of the Reagan words that we heard earlier. They were his best shot at a vision of America. In this case, no longer optimistic, in fact, deeply pessimistic, resentful, aggrieved, but a powerful appeal to a sense that people, the real American people, had been shoved aside. Peter Thiel, the billionaire Trump supporter, once told me that Mitt Romney came asking for money in 2012 when he was running for president. And Thiel asked him how, what his campaign was going to be. And Romney said, I think if we just get rid of Barack Obama, this country can do anything. And Thiel may have said, but certainly thought, that's a bad message because people think there's a lot more wrong than that. The person with the darkest message is going to win, which has never been true in American politics, but it was true in 2016. And Trump understood that. So that speech, he doesn't say real Americans, but that's what he means. The real people, the people who've been forgotten. Sarah Palin, and your book really shaped my thinking about her a lot. When she emerged on the scene in 2008, I immediately felt this wasn't something new. She was a kind of political figure I'd never seen before. Maybe George Wallace had prefigured it a bit, Patrick Buchanan had said some of the same things, but he was an insider. She was not just from the working class, but in the working class. And her identity as a white working class woman was the key to her appeal. It was what people loved about her, that she had 
no credentials, that she didn't talk like a professional, that she didn't know anything. This stuff that invalidated her in our eyes and in the eyes of the McCain campaign people who found her, uh, for her supporters was proof of her authenticity, her being real. And she said at a campaign stop in front of donors, which is where candidates tell the truth, (laughs) I love being here with what I call the real America, with all of you patriotic, hardworking people who grow our food and teach our children and fight our wars. And that phrase became my tag for the third narrative. And Sarah Palin was the, as you say, the avatar, the John the Baptist for that identity. It became an identity. It was white identity politics of a kind that we had not seen at the national level. And Trump took it to the level of presidential power because he had lots of skills and talents that Palin lacked and because the timing was not quite right for Palin, but it was right for Trump. So real America is white, Christian, heartland, working and middle class and aggrieved, aggrieved economically, aggrieved culturally, aggrieved racially. It's all about grievance. It's all about resentment, which are powerful emotions to appeal to. And it is also a rebellion against smart and free America. Right. Against smart America because we professionals look down on them. We call them flyover country. Our contempt for the uneducated is barely disguised. Our sense that they are retrograde and benighted and bigoted, the basket of deplorables, as Hillary Clinton called it in front of donors. And it's a rebellion against free America because free America gave us immigration, trade deals, and an economy that worked for corporations, but not for workers, and that shredded some of the social supports that white working class people wanted, Medicare, Social Security, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So it's a rebellious and insurgent narrative that has competed now on the red side with the elite Republican narrative of free markets. And as you said, John, Trump successfully ran on it. Right. So then we have on the other side, leads us directly, the discussion of, as you said, an insurgent narrative on the right, which is the real America. We have an insurgent narrative on the left, and that will give us our fourth narrative. And that is, of course, just America. I would place, again, air quotes around just because you're not really talking about a narrative that is, in fact, more just, but a narrative that values a particular conception of justice. And that is essentially really what you would probably have called woke America rather than just America if you were using the vernacular, so to speak. Mm. Just America is kind of its self-conception. Woke America is what its critics would call it. But that's really what you're talking about when you talk about just America. I wanted each of the narratives to be given the name it would give itself. Give itself. What is its own conception? You're exactly right. What is its sense of its own value? Free, smart, real. Those are values. And they're values that people who somehow follow that narrative subscribe to. Just America is certainly not about America being just. In fact, Some people said to me, you really should have called it unjust America because this narrative has a profound sense of a permanent state of injustice in this country. It's an insurgent narrative from a generation of younger people, millennials and younger, against our generation, against their parents, against smart America, the one it's closest to. It's very closely related to smart America because it is in the same institutions that are led by smart Americans, but it's an attempt to uproot those institutions and to change their character fundamentally. And I'm talking about the Whitney Museum, the New York Times, Princeton University, 
the elite dominant institutions of our culture have all been challenged and in some cases profoundly transformed by a narrative that's coming from young people from below who are disenchanted with the sanguine gradualism of the Clintons and of Obama, who don't believe we're becoming a more perfect union at all, who think we were born in original sin, the sin of slavery, and who believe that nothing short of a kind of revolution of consciousness with a a whole language, a whole lexicon to accompany it is going to begin to redeem us from our turpitude, from our sinful past. And it has a lot of ideas that I'm sympathetic to. Mm. Last summer, the protests in the streets of our cities and towns was an explosion of this narrative in the most passionate, concrete form. And it has some things in common with real America too, I guess you could say. It's impatient with compromise. It rejects the idea of America as a land of opportunity, however imperfect. It instead has a very dark view of America and of American history. And it has a rigid set of ideas that are, let's just say, intolerant of critique and of reasonable argument. And instead, it insists through identity, through the assertion of an identity. Sarah Palin asserted one identity, and I think the young followers of Just America assert other identities, but it's identity that makes you right and that makes you just. And so in that way, it's illiberal. It undermines the values that I think of as liberal values of individual freedom and equality, of reason and objectivity, of due process, of objective knowledge. So in all those ways, it's a challenge to some fundamental American self-conceptions. It's a revolutionary narrative. So we uh, do want to pitch forward here eventually to talk about 9-11 the anniversary, of course, looming just a few days ahead of us. But in a way, this conversation does, in fact, pitch us forward because it leads to a discussion of the fifth narrative that I mentioned earlier, one that you, George, came up with after the book was published. And that discussion, the discussion of the fifth narrative, will carry us right where we want to go, or at least where I want to go, in terms of how we want to frame the the conversation about 9-11. So we're going to do all of that. But first... First, we have to take a quick break, as always, to sell some consumer products to my favorite America. That would be greedy, consumerist, acquisitive, home shopping America. How's that for a narrative? Maybe not my favorite America, but the America that keeps us afloat here at Hell and I Water. So we will do that. We'll play some ads and then we'll come back and we'll chat some more with George Packer here on Hell and High Water. So we're back, as promised, on Hell and High Water for our last part of the conversation today with George Packer, the author of oh so many books, but most recently, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, which if you haven't read it, you really gotta. So if you haven't bought it, you really, really gotta. So go do that right now. We were talking about the book just before the break. And the interesting thing that that occurs to me now, you know, which is that the two dominant narratives, George, that you lay out in the book, free America for the Republicans, smart America for the Democrats, 
And then the two insurgent narratives, right? Real America on the right and just America, what I like to call woke America on the left. And what strikes me about those narratives is that the dominant narratives, free and smart, are both fundamentally optimistic, whereas the insurgent narratives, real and and just slash woke, are essentially pessimistic. And that although the, the last two, real and just, come from very different places ideologically, their shared pessimism is rooted in a shared critique. Again, different varieties of that critique, but fundamentally, they're both saying that America is fucked up because it's not equal in some way. And I know, George, you've said in the past on a number of occasions that you think the core dynamic that's led to the splintering of the country is inequality. And that also led you, after the book was published, to write a piece in The Atlantic about what you called a fifth narrative that could help in some way bring the country back together. And that narrative is equal America, uh, addressing the inequality problem head on. So please, uh, long question, but take all of that Mm. and talk about it all and help me understand whether I'm seeing this with any degree of clarity or if I'm just as confused as I usually am. I think you you said it and you've said it really well. I would add to inequality as a cause the rise of what I call a multi-everything democracy, which has also happened in these 50 years with mass immigration, with the rise of previously disenfranchised groups into a place in the sun, into their own voice, especially Black Americans, which is now in the shorthand is majority-minority America. The mistake people make is imagining that majority-minority America has a particular political outlook and that that outlook will be friendly to Democrats. And I think that's a mistaken assumption. We learned in 2020 that Trump's support among white men declined over 2016. His support among black and Latino men went up substantially among Latino men. So that shows that identity is not political destiny and that this is a mistake just America makes over and over and keeps misinterpreting the electorate to its own detriment. So politically, that's a mistake that just America keeps making. I think of equality as the core American desire. And that's something that comes from Tocqueville. At the very beginning of Democracy in America, written in the 1830s, he said, I'm paraphrasing, but the thing that's most distinctive about these people is the equality of conditions And he didn't mean everyone is living at the exact same level, although there was, for white Americans, a lot more equality then than there is now. But what he meant was socially and as citizens, the field is open, again, for certain people, for white men. The field is open. Opportunities are open. No one is denied any path based on where they were born or what family they were born into. It was a kind of social revolution that a European had never imagined, had never seen. And it was not just a condition, but a desire. He called it a passion, the desire, the passion to be as good as everyone else, to be able to say, I am your equal. I can look you in the eye. And we've never lived up to it. We've never fulfilled it, especially in the way Black Americans have been treated. But really in all kinds of ways. But it remains, I think, the core drive. Tocqueville said it runs even deeper than the desire for freedom, which is an interesting thing to hear today. So for me, a narrative that goes back so deep into American identity, a narrative based on 
the desire for equality, which includes equal status, equal opportunity, and to some degree, equal conditions. Because once conditions become so extreme as they are in our second Gilded Age, you can't speak honestly of equality between citizens. So it, I think Biden's domestic policy is essentially, he's never given it this phrase, but I think it's essentially based on this idea that Americans have to be able to live and see each other as equals. And therefore, we're going to spend money on jobs that you don't need a college degree to get, like in the infrastructure bill. We're going to spend money on the caregiving jobs, on early education, and on home health aids and elderly care. And we're going to spend money on bringing broadband to rural America, because without broadband, it's like not having electricity or water. Right. It crosses the lines of group identity. It crosses the lines of red and blue. It is, to me, the most unifying, the most encompassing narrative that I can think of. And it also, as I say, has the advantage of answering what is a kind of deep historical drive among Americans. You wrote this piece in The Atlantic, as I said, about the notion of a fifth narrative. So it's like an epilogue to the book that's not actually in the book. <laughs> Maybe it will be in the paperback as the epilogue to the book, the ep epilogue to the book. Yeah. And it talks about this notion of fifth narrative. You're discussing Biden, the ambition of Biden's domestic program, primarily the LBJ on steroids quality of spending, if he had his way, spending six and a half trillion dollars if he had his way over the course of one calendar year, so far off the charts by any metric that we've ever judged domestic policy, that it's almost hard to comprehend, even if you take as read the notion that COVID required a large response, that first $2 trillion that we spent that was in that first COVID relief bill of the Biden era. We now are talking about another four and a half trillion dollars in spending on infrastructure, both hard infrastructure and soft, massively ambitious, yeah. transformative, and that it goes to your notion of equality or egalitarianism, like trying to equalize conditions in some way, I think is important in this sense and telling. And, and I will then carry this into our discussion about 9-11 because I think it goes to kind of what our democracy is about and what some of the lessons of the way that we think about 9-11 on its 20th anniversary. But you write in the book that the 2020 election was basically smart and just America versus free and real America. Those were the real coalitions, right? And Biden doesn't really fit into any of those. Biden is not part of smart America. He's not a meritocrat. He's also certainly not a social justice warrior. And clearly he's not on the right wing side. And so it's like almost as much as it's a new narrative, there had to be in some sense, given the ambition of Biden's program, there must be some new narrative that encompasses it because he's not pursuing a woke left agenda and he's not pursuing that technocratic. It's an older fashioned version. It's a more Rooseveltian or Johnsonian, a pre-contemporary kind of political philosophy to the extent that Joe Biden has one. And I think it's interesting that whether he knows this or not, if you were going to say, what's this all about? It's about a conviction that if we're ever going to put the country back together and have unity and cohesion again, we cannot tolerate the level of inequality that we have. And so improving America's material conditions in a way that's egalitarian is the first step towards reuniting the country. I don't know if Joe Biden could ever say those words or even thinks it through on that level, but that is, I think, the core of his economic advisors, that is the core kind of philosophical, theoretical underpinning of what they're up to. And I think you put your finger on it when you wrote about it in that piece. Yeah. What you just gave is the best description of the, the vision, which Biden is not good at. No. And it's a, it's a weakness that he has as a politician. Even though we're skeptical of 
people speaking in glittering generalities. We actually want it. We really want to hear Ronald Reagan talk about the city on the hill. We really want to hear Barack Obama talk about there is no red America, there is no blue America. Even if we don't believe it, we want to hear it. And Biden doesn't have that register. He doesn't speak in those terms. But I think that is what's behind it. And it kind of answers the question that pundits have had of how is it that this has been thrice defeated and in some ways kind of mocked figure has become not just the president, but the potentially transformative president. And I think it is at least partly because he doesn't belong to the narratives that have so driven us into permanent existential conflict. And he has a connection almost, I think, instinctual to a sort of simpler idea, which does go back to Roosevelt, to Truman, to Johnson, of basic decency and of basic fairness that doesn't need a lot of terminology, doesn't need to be proven by algorithm or by PhD vocabulary. Right. And it's appealing in that way. It has a kind of overarching magnetism that can cross these lines that we've been talking about. George, mentioning Obama and that famous speech, there is no red America, there is no blue America, we're all one America, actually makes for a perfect transition to my final topic of the day, which, as I've been promising for a while now, is 9-11. And you know, you've written about 9-11 before recently, just a couple of weeks ago in The Atlantic, you wrote this essay about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the 20th anniversary, which is, of course, coming up at the end of this week. And I, I wanted to play, in fact, Barack Obama speaking at a commemoration of the 10th anniversary uh, of 9-11 at the Kennedy Center back in 2011. It's the fall of, obviously, of that year. Obama's gearing up to run for re-election in 2012, and he gave this uh, a kind of typically Obama poetic, powerful speech, uh, sort of quintessential Obama. And I wanted to play this section of it because I think it goes to some of the larger themes that we're talking about here, not just about 9-11 and, and foreign policy and the, and the war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan, all those things that people think about in the context of 9-11, but also more fundamentally what Obama talks about here, which is about the, the sort of state of our democracy and in, in his conception, its durability. And what I would say now is a greater sense of its fragility and the challenges that that fragility poses to Joe Biden and to all of us, really. But let's play Obama now talking on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, and we'll get into all that stuff on the other side. Decades from now, Americans will visit the memorials to those who were lost on 9-11. And they will know that nothing can break the will of a truly united States of America. They will remember that we've overcome slavery and civil war. We've overcome red lines and fascism and recession and riots and communism and, yes, terrorism. They will be reminded that we are not perfect. But our democracy is durable. And that democracy, reflecting as it does the imperfections of man, also give us the opportunity to per perfect our union. That is what we honor on days of national commemoration. Those aspects of the American experience that are enduring and the determination to move forward as one people. More than monuments, that will be the legacy of 9-11. So that's Barack Obama talking uh, 
in a kind of beautiful and inspiring way about the durability of the American system, about how we've been tested and, you know, in his usual way, the arc of the moral and political universe is long, but bends towards justice or bends towards more perfection. And and I want to I want to drill down on that and, and whether that still seems applicable to our current moment in a second. But before that, let me just get one last foreign policy question into you, George, here, just because, you know, we started our, our conversation today talking about Afghanistan and what you see and a lot of people see is the mess of how Biden withdrew. This isn't just the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It's also really the 20th anniversary of the global war on terror, so-called. The Iraq war is over. The Afghanistan war is over. The deaths caused by radical Islamic fundamentalism and the terror campaigns that it spawned peaked, you know, a decade ago. You know, in in some measure, a lot of people look at the 20-year war on terror and they they say, man, this was a very costly thing. It cost lives. It cost treasure. It caused changes in our American way of life. But we won in some ways, or at least that the world that we now live in is not a world where people walk around in constant fear of radical Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. On the other hand, you know, we now see the rise of ISIS-K in Afghanistan. We've just had a car bomb that killed 13 Americans uh, in Kabul. And people are starting to talk about, you know, with the Taliban back in control in Afghanistan, that maybe there will be a new surge in radical Islamic fundamentalist terrorism in that region. And we'll all find ourselves in a state of peril again. So I guess I ask you, looking, taking the, the largest kind of 30,000 foot view over these 20 years and looking at the global war on terror, what do we make of it? Was it a success? Is it a success? Can we judge it in that way? When you weigh out all of the competing costs and benefits and assets and liabilities, what do we say at this juncture about the global war on terror? Well, when Cho and Lai was asked how he assessed the French Revolution, he said, it's too soon to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it's too soon to say. It's very hard to assess this because, first of all, it's just so big and amorphous and complex. It has so many different aspects to it, both domestic policy, the homeland security, our daily lives, airports, police departments, surveillance, priorities, as you say, that were lost, including the big one, global warming. And then abroad, the wars, the lost lives, the failed effort to create stable, friendly governments in Iraq and Afghanistan. When you look at it that way, the war on terror was a failure. It was a big, costly failure because eventually it became an effort to remake the Islamic world. And we could not do that. We did not know how. We did not have the competence or the will or the ability. It was a success in the sense that for 20 years, we have not had anything close to another 9-11. And if you yeah. told me that there wouldn't be one on 9-12, I wouldn't have believed you because we all assumed it was just a matter of time. For an, an Afghan 25-year-old woman, there were 20 years in which we created the possibility for her to have a better life. And those 20 years were very important for that generation in Afghanistan and really in Iraq too, a little less dramatically. And now we've abandoned that. And so in a sense, we've left a failure where we had the beginning of a success, maybe not a durable success, but you can't look those people in the face and tell them that that doesn't matter to us. It's very hard for me to think about how much we've abandoned in Afghanistan. And all of that is just too damn hard for me to add up and give you a single figure. 
So, I mean, that's fair. That's, <laughs> that's probably what I would have said too. 20 years in, too early to say, to render a final verdict. And obviously, you know, the story is not over. Going back to the Obama sound again, and this question of the durability of our democracy and, and how for a lot of people on 9-11, they don't actually think about the foreign policy element of it. They think about, you know, what has stood the test of time is American democracy. And hearing that at the time when Obama said it, I think it's very inspiring to a lot of people. And I don't sense that people have that same feeling today, maybe, that those words wouldn't land the same way after what we saw happen earlier this year. And, and it does raise a question that I get asked all the time, having been, people know, I, I was up on Capitol Hill on January 6th of this year and saw that insurrection up close. George, I know you were in New York. I was not on the day that 9-11 occurred, and yet I had a lot of friends in New York, and I spent a lot of time there within a couple of weeks after 9-11. So I remember when Ground Zero was a giant smoking pit, uh, a, a hole in the ground, and people were still incredibly profoundly rattled by what had happened on 9-11. The two events get compared by people now. And there's some controversy about this because I have said on multiple occasions in public places that as terrible and terrifying and horrific as 9-11 was, and although the death toll from 9-11 obviously much greater than the death toll from January 6th, that I find January 6th in some ways more unnerving because it's a threat from within. This note, like, what is a greater threat to American democracy? We have had enemies, external enemies, from the moment that this republic was founded. We've had periods of war. We have periods of peace. We've almost never been completely at peace in the whole history of the country, never been uh, completely free of foreign entanglements. What we didn't think we had through much of our history was an, an incipient insurrectionist force that was willing to stage an event that struck at the very heart of our democracy and that was wanting to challenge the fundamental legitimacy of an American presidential election in the way that what happened on 1-6 was. And so I find the ongoing threat of that related to the threats from white nationalism and domestic terror, I find all of that in some ways more, more troubling and maybe more lastingly threatening in some ways than what happened on 9-11. And I don't know, maybe a lot of people yell at me when I say it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, I've got the wrong end of the stick, and, and, but I really don't want it mean to in any way denigrate or downplay what happened on 9-11. But I'm just curious what you think about that. You write about the insurrection in your book as being kind of the last day of 2020. I'm curious how you, when you lay those two events next to each other, which one you think is more troubling, more problematic, and more threatening to America? I had never quite thought about it in that way, but now that I hear you, I agree with you. It's like the difference between a knife attack that leaves a deep wound but doesn't kill you and cancer, which is going to be with you for the rest of your life and which may well kill you and which will keep coming back. So it's inside us. We have no unifying enemy that we had after Pearl Harbor and for maybe a few months or a couple of years after 9-11. The very act of January 6th divides us. Some people want to find out what the hell happened and make sure it never happens again. And other people want to bury it alive. And it represents a level of disbelief in ourselves and in our democratic values that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. 9-11 was a shock, but we knew about terrorism. And in some ways, we should have known better. We should have expected it. They'd been trying to get our attention for about a decade. But to see Americans try to invade the Capitol and hang 
elected officials and overthrow the Constitution and the popular will. The only analogies I've got are 1861. And I honestly thought that 1861 was one of a kind. (laughs) And Fort Sumter was history. And here we are facing potentially worse the next time we have a disputed election, which will be the next election. And the next time we have laws and officials in place who are not going to uphold the vote, but who are going to overturn it. We seem headed for that right now. So it's us. (laughs) It's that old pogo line. We've met the enemy. And it's so much harder to figure out what to do when you are your own enemy and you're falling apart and breaking into pieces without really anything fundamental being wrong. So yeah, we have, we've met the enemy and he is us. So, right. And I think that's why it is so troubling to me, you know, and what feels to, to me and not me alone, like we're in this existential now generational conflict for, you know, those people who want America to continue to be a democratic Republic and want that model to survive versus those who have thrown down essentially with the forces of autocracy and, and fascism and autocracy that we have a vanguard and not, and not a small vanguard, one that's, you know, tens of millions of people right now sit around and say that they don't think that the 2020 election was legitimate and that they believe Joe Biden was an illegitimate president. The election was stolen, was rigged. You know, this is obviously the story of the big lie. We are now in a new big generational struggle, George, it seems to me, and one that is, I think, an existential threat to the America that you and I grew up in and the America that you have written about in many of these books in such a brilliant way. And so I guess my last question of the day is, number one, do you agree with me that we're in an existential crisis along the lines that I just described? And then secondly, is Joe Biden the right person to meet that crisis, to overcome that crisis, to subdue that crisis? Is he the right president to meet that moment? Because, you know, here we are 20 years after 9-11 and a lot of beautiful words will be spoken on that anniversary. But as I said before, I think some of them ring hollow and there's a nervousness in the land about this moment, this new, very fraught moment that we're entering. And a lot of people who really felt that 2020 was an election about the future of our democracy felt that Joe Biden, the good guy, won. Uh, and that the forces of autocracy and and kleptocracy and other bad things were beaten back in 2020. But now the fight goes on. And the real question is, is Joe Biden the leader that we need? He's the leader we have, but is he the leader that we need in this moment in your judgment? So we are in a state of dire <laughs> existential crisis. And yet it's as if it's hard to diagnose exactly what what the fight is about it it's it's not so obvious it's deep i'm saying i'm not saying it's unreal it's real it's deep right. but it's almost like a crisis of of identity a crisis an invisible crisis more than something you can actually just put your finger on and say if we could solve this problem we'll solve that crisis is joe biden capable of of beginning to pull us out of the the threat and the threat to be honest is for all that we've said about the four narratives, there really are fundamentally two political sides and each sees the other as illegitimate and dangerous and in need of conquering, whether it's through an election or voter suppression or a Supreme Court ruling or gerrymandering 
or getting rid of the filibuster, but one way or another, we need to find a shortcut to conquering that threat. And that is not a way a democracy can thrive or even survive, especially when one party has chosen a leader to follow who really doesn't believe in any of the democratic values that the country depends on and is ready to have them all overthrown for his own power, as we saw on January 6th. So that is a serious threat. And I guess a few months ago, I looked at Biden's, there was, and even during the campaign, his speeches were so simple and somehow reassuring. We can do this. We're Americans. He didn't argue. He didn't have to persuade. He didn't draw up a a theory of the case, as you said. It was just something about his character that gave me the feeling this man seems to have his finger on the pulse at the age of 78. And to be able to speak in a way that doesn't antagonize people and doesn't divide people, and he doesn't immediately go to the issues that are going to make people crazy. I guess his presidency has been a lesson in the fact that to be that old really is a detriment. I don't know about his cognitive abilities, but I do know that his rhetorical abilities are very limited and you need to be able to bring people with you. And he, his handling of the last days of Afghanistan to me was so bad that it showed a kind of dangerous void of leadership that may well go along with the fallibility, the frailty of being his age. Um, and being surrounded by very intelligent, very capable staffers who don't have the standing to to to, to stand up to him. So I'm I I'm less certain of Biden as the answer than I was when I wrote Last Best Hope. Um, but he's what we've got. <laughs> we have to really, really want him to succeed. <laughs> I think I think we do. And yeah. and I think, you know, one of the things we've talked about on this podcast, George, is is like the one of the worst things about our country right now is that after 20, 30 years of bitterness and partisanship and polarization, that, you know, if you say you want Joe Biden to succeed, that you're considered some kind of a partisan hack. And my view throughout my whole adult life in this business has been, you know, when George W. Bush became president in two thousand one. I thought the right thing was for all Americans to root for a success. And and I would have said that, you know, in any presidential election, if Mitt Romney had beaten Barack Obama in 2012, you know, I would have disagreed with him pretty profoundly about a lot of things on the policy front, but I would have rooted for a success. And, and I, I think it strikes me as crazy that we now live in a country where rooting for an American president to succeed, especially one who's facing a fundamental crisis where that's seen as a partisan act. But that is unfortunately the America we live in right now. And it's one of the most fundamental problems we have going forward. You have also addressed many of them in in your books. I'm so thrilled that we had a chance to talk today at some length about all the writing you've done, both on the foreign front and the domestic front. We're really grateful that you took some time to spend with us today. And we got to go pretty deep on these topics. Everyone out there, go buy all of George Packer's books. And George, uh, thanks again for taking the time to be with us here for a little while on Hell and High Water. John, I totally enjoyed it. We covered a lot of ground and I'm, I'm beginning to understand how you get the characters in your books to tell you all the things that they tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for taking the time, George. Uh, George Packer, ladies and gentlemen, here on Hell and High Water. Take care. 
Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to George Packer for being with If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel. Castro Russell is our executive producer. 